you'd go see the customer and you might have an hour, hour and a half with the buyer or the buyer's boss. And that was your time to glean everything that you could about their challenges in the business and what they were trying to accomplish and the things that we could do to help them accelerate those goals in our mutual business. And those skills about listening and really understanding the clues for how are we going to make joint decisions to grow our mutual business, that applies to everything that you do in business. And it's helped me immensely work with franchisees that have their own set of challenges is that sometimes they align with young brands and sometimes they don't. But my job as a leader is to find where those things align and go build upon them. Because if we're working on one strategy together, there's nothing that we can't accomplish. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G alumni podcast. I'm Raman Segal, recovering marketer. And I'm Rajiv Sethiyal, the funny Indian. Raman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we're talking to Kevin Hockman, president of KFC US and past president of Pizza Hut US. There was a great conversation about his journey from the CPG to the fast food industry. As president, Hockman oversees over 10,000 restaurants across the US and more than $10 billion in retail sales combined. He went to Yum Brands, the corporation operating KFC and Pizza Hut, after his tenure at P&G, where he held the position of North America cosmetics business leader. His 18 years with P&G spanned diverse experiences, including the brand leader of the number one brand in five different categories, Olay, Gillette, Secret, Old Spice, and CoverGirl. Kevin has earned multiple recognitions, from Forbes naming him the second most influential CEO in the world to Advertising Age's A-List, which are testaments to the work Kevin and his team have led to making KFC relevant again. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Kevin Hockman. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, th thanks for having me. P&G has had such a remarkable impact on my life. It's really kind of an honor to be invited to do this. So thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. I know you have a very fascinating story. A lot of people know your professional story, in fact. But what many folks want to know is who you were before you got your professional start. Can you tell us the story from your youth? Well, my background, I grew up in Miami, Florida. I was the youngest of three boys. My other two brothers are attorneys today. I was always kind of the baby of the family. My mom loved the fact that I was the youngest. And my brothers, even to this day, even though I run a couple of pretty big businesses, still call me baby Kevin when they see me at Thanksgiving. So <laughs> I'd say that my early years in childhood, I wish I could tell you I was really deliberate on. I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. And the reality is that kind of my formative years were just watching my mom be a servant to our family and her friends. And servant leadership became something that later on I really discovered I loved. And looking back on it, that was definitely came from my mother. And I'd say that's probably the biggest thing that I learned as a, as a youth was the importance of hard work and the importance of being a servant to those around you and, and having that be a fulfilling part of someone's life. And I don't know why people that are in the servant leadership are, but it's, it's certainly there's something in it for, for us and it drives us. And as I've gotten older and are a bit more kind of aware of what drives me. That's like, I look back at my child and think that's what my mom delivered for me. 
Wow, that's really cool. It's great to be able to give a shout out to the moms out there. It's, it's not an easy role. So that's awesome. And so you mentioned you didn't really know what you wanted to be when you grew up. What's the first way you made money? Did you have a business on the side, a lemonade stand, anything like that? No, I mean, I, I had a lot of opportunity growing up in a nice family. I didn't have hardships. My Both of my parents were very kind to me and my brothers. And that's a blessing and a curse in some ways. My father grew up in a single parent household. He basically worked for everything that he had, got a scholarship to NYU and eventually a scholarship to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, was a self-employed doctor. My mom ran his practice in terms of the business affairs of it. And so I never had any exposure to like corporate America or what it would be like to really work for somebody. Basic things that we teach in P&G, like writing skills and how to think through problems and things like that. And so on one hand, it was a blessing in that I didn't want for anything and growing up in a really nice household. But the flip side is, is my dad didn't work for anybody. And so some of those core skills that we learn that make you successful in a big corporation or really any corporation, those were things I didn't really have a lot of exposure to until I started working. And even throughout college, I probably had odds and end jobs of more blue collar work, but never really understood the idea of serving others and what does it mean to have a job and have a boss and have specific responsibilities? And I have P&G to thank for really teaching me that. And it's interesting. I was reflecting back on my first job. I was a cost forecaster in Hunt Valley, Maryland at our cosmetics and at the time cosmetics and fragrance plant. And my job was every month was to help forecast the cost of goods and distribution and warehousing. And then I would send that forecast over to the profit forecaster and that person would roll it up to the beauty care forecast and that person would roll it up to the as a sector forecast and that person would roll it up eventually to the you know, the <laughs> company and obviously i know a lot more about business today than i did when i was 21 when i started but because i didn't really understand how it all worked i was incredibly inefficient in my job png was very very kind to me and my bosses were very kind to me and bringing me along and teaching me how things worked and pointing out the mistakes that I made and why they made mistakes so I became a better cost forecaster. And then they taught me, future bosses taught me kind of the basics of being a professional and even some ways of being an adult. So I'm very, very grateful for the people that kind of coached me throughout my career at P&G, especially those early years where there were some basic things that I really desperately needed. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like they were able to fill in some of the gaps, like you said, a blessing and a curse. And sometimes it's great to have that sort of innocent take on the world and and then learn as you go. That is a way better way to explain it. Say I had an innocent take on the world, right? (laughs) Instead of saying I was clueless. But I remember my first boss that really sat down with me at P&G and was like, Kevin, you need to learn how to write and you need to learn how to present your ideas and and so on and so on. His name was Rick Shepard. He's a huge executive now at a giant pharmaceutical company. And he did it in a very kind way, right? It was like, hey, Kevin, based on where you want to go and what I know about you and here are the things I appreciate about you and here's the areas that if you just worked on these things and became more effective in these things, you'd become a much more effective leader. And he did that with all of his people and he always built these great teams because he spent a lot of his time just coaching and, and, and doing it in a very, everybody needs different types of coaching, right? And he was very specific based on the way he thought you would respond better to it. And it was really the first boss I had that was really going to be honest with me about my performance and about what I needed to do better. And 
I can't thank Rick Shepard enough for having those conversations with me because it taught me then how to how do I make myself better, right? How do I always be hungry about what are the things I need to work on to be a better leader at whatever level I'm at, right? And then being really deliberate about spending time and getting experiences and talking to people that can help me in those areas. So, and then I had a, a course of many other coaches over the years that had taught me other things. But I remember that was a very impactful time in my career because I finally had someone that sat me down and was like, these are the things that you need to work on. And it just taught me how to, then it almost taught me how to then start teaching myself about what are the things I need to do to continually improve. Wow. I'm sure Rick appreciates that because mentorship is such a key thread of this podcast. So when you think of mentorship, has that something you've taken over as a role in your own career? Yeah, absolutely. So I pretty much mentor most of the folks that will come to me and ask for mentorship unless there's some kind of conflict. One of the things I do in my KSC organization here is I try every six months to meet with every high potential individual in the organization, as well as our directors and above level. And I do that for two reasons. One, they appreciate having access to a senior leader in the organization and any coaching that they might need help with or any barriers that they need brought down to help them be their best or achieve their best. They appreciate that. And the flip side is in having those meetings, I have a really good pulse of what's going on in the organization and the business, right? Because inevitably, when you ask people what's going well and what are the things that you wish you could be making more progress on and what are the, some of the challenges that you see in the organization, you have the, just the best conversations, right? And it's a dual purpose. One, it's about providing people coaching and mentorship. But two, it allows me to be a more in-touch leader with what's really going on in the organization. And the higher you go in an organization, the harder it is to really understand what's going on on the front lines. And so finding ways like mentorship is a great example of being able to stay in touch in a very organic way that actually helps everybody else around you too is a really important thing to, to kind of map out and be committed to. And that's a lot of time. I mean, we have, I have an organization of 300 people that work on KFC. I don't meet with all 300. I meet with a subset of them, but it requires really making sure that you deliberately make time to have those conversations because it's going to help you run the business and it's also going to help you impact people's careers and, and accelerate their growth. And so it's incredibly important, not just for the idea of giving back, given how much you've been given and how those people have made you a great leader, but it also helps you, especially if you do it within the context of running a business or in something that's going to help you accelerate your own growth. It's interesting you say that as you go higher and higher, it's harder to get the really, really. I mean, does that happen? Do you find that that, whether it was at P&G or where you are now, is it kind of, you can get that through the sort of official channels of meetings and alignments and all of those sorts of things? Or do you find that it's kind of those hallway chats or just kind of sitting down and going, all right, give me the really, really. Is there a mechanism that's built in or do you still find it's helpful to, to find that out kind of? off the beaten path. The book thing would tell you is make sure that all of the folks that work closely with you feel absolute trust because they feel absolute trust with you. They'll be willing to tell you anything. And in theory, that's totally right, right? If I had time to spend enough time with every person that is in contact with me in my orbit and my organization to build that deep level of trust where they feel like they could tell me anything and not feel like I would judge in any way, that would be the ideal. The problem is it's just not enough hours in the day to be able to do that. So there's probably a core group of folks that might sit on your lead team that you can build that trust with, right? 
but the larger organization is very difficult. And so to so the challenges, and if you can't build that deep, deep level of trust where people feel like they can tell you anything, you do have to have other ways of making sure that you stay in touch with what's happening. And the leaders have all different ways of doing that, right? Whether it's a few people at different levels that they mentor or coach or have regular check-ins with, but it's very important to have those avenues of communication because regardless of how kind of leader you are and the types of things that you say and the, and the environment that you try to create, there's always going to be those challenges where some people are just not going to feel comfortable telling you everything that's on their mind. So, or yeah. it's just impossible to have your fingers on everything. So it's really important to be deliberate about having those open channels to get that information. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. When you think of it, and of course, now you're in a strong leadership role in the beginning of your career, towards the beginning of your career, what was one of your early defining career moments? I was like a brand manager on CoverGirl Cosmetics. And at the time, we were vying number one, number two with Maybelline. It was a real challenge. And it's a highly competitive industry, fashion-based. Every season, you got to have new products. Probably the farthest away from kind of core CPG categories that we work in, that if you work in fabric, you might, you might have one or two big initiatives a year. And part of that game was about getting shelf space, right? It was about creating enough innovation that was going to drive the category so that retailers would look at what you had to offer and go, boy, I better increase my shelf of CoverGirl if I want to win in this category and drive my category because what they're bringing is going to win in, in the market, right? And at the time, very good friend of mine, unfortunately passed away, one of the great sales leaders at Procter & Gamble, Brian Dickerhoof. He was the sales leader at, on our Walmart team for cosmetics. And he had this whole vision about how we would work with the buyer to look at some of the trends that they see outside of food, drug, and mass and say, okay, how do we work together to bring that to your planogram, your shelf? And Kevin, the brand manager of CoverGirl and his team, is gonna, we're going to co-create a shelf with you and customers so that Walmart can get their disproportionate share of cosmetics. And so I was going down there every three weeks to help build the shelf and, and we'd go get customer learnings in the interim three weeks. And we had some custom SKUs that we were working on. And it was a very, very big project, but the size of prize at the end of it was humongous for our business. It would be just trajectory changing for the business if we could figure this out together. And I remember it's probably three, four months into doing this, and Jeff Schomberger, who was the president of the Walmart team at the time, had heard about the work that we were doing. And he was like, hey, would you ever consider coming and working at on the Walmart team with us as a marketer that's supporting the sales team? I was like, yeah, I would love to do that. I got to talk to my wife. She also had a, a big career at Procter & Gamble. And I remember convincing my wife to just, let's just go out to Arkansas together and take a look at it. And eventually, when we got there and we both worked on the Walmart team, it was just transformational for us on so many ways and so many levels from a career standpoint and a life standpoint. But that was that was just really career and life-changing for me. And even today, I don't think I would have had the success at Yum! Brands and on KSC and now on Pizza Hut had I not had that experience because of what you learn working on the Walmart team day in and day out. It's just an incredible experience. The number one, the leadership of Jeff Schomerer and a guy like Mike Russell, who ran our SAMS team, these are great sales leaders that knew how to drive culture. They knew how to get teams to work hard, regardless of what the results were. Everybody was committed to the cause. You couldn't tell whether it was a bad sales week or a good sales week because everybody was focused and having fun and getting after it. They taught me about the importance of focusing on what matters. Mike Russell was a master 
at teaching me on how to be a great listener. Because you'd go see the customer and you might have an hour, hour and a half with the buyer or the buyer's boss. And that was your time that you wanted to glean everything that you could from them in terms of how they thought about their challenges in the business and what they were trying to accomplish from a category standpoint or from a Walmart standpoint. And what are the things that we could do as a major supplier to help them accelerate those goals and accelerate our mutual business? And those skills about listening and really understanding the clues for how are we going to make joint decisions to grow our mutual business, that applies to everything that you do in business. And it's helped me immensely work with franchisees that have their own set of challenges that sometimes they align with young brands and sometimes they don't. But my job as a leader is to find where those things align and go build upon them. Because if we're working on one strategy together, there's nothing that my franchisees and I can't accomplish. And it was very, very similar that you saw in that Walmart team. So incredibly impactful. The other way I would tell you that was impactful for me that I think would be important for folks to know was every senior leader that had the U.S. business in P&G would come see their Walmart business, right? Because it's mm. so big. It was like at the time, I think they were like 30% of most of our categories, right? And so you'd see the general manager of the deodorants, and then you'd see the general manager of Fabricare, and you'd see the general manager of paper. And they were all superheroes in their own right, right? They're all incredibly successful running these gigantic businesses at this preeminent consumer products good company in the world. They invented a lot of these processes that we all use in the industry now, right? And they were incredibly successful, but they all had their own superpowers, right? I look at someone like AC Eggleston, who has been a huge coach of mine, helped me in so many ways in becoming a better leader. And her style, completely different than another great leader, Alex Keith, who was equally successful, right? But had a completely different style. And you as a leader, you can sit there and watch these people come in and teach you about their business and teach you about just through observation, seeing how they interact with buyers and their own teams and our team, and you start learning different styles that you can pick up and say, oh, I want to pick this up from Alex, and I want to pick this up from Joe R. Curry, and I want to pick this up from AC. And you can start creating your own leadership style, right, based on the things that get you excited because they're all incredibly effective, right? And so between learning all these different businesses and learning from these amazing leaders and then learning from the Walmart customer, and they're sharp as tax, right, run one of the largest companies in the world. It's an incredibly transformational experience. I wouldn't trade that in the world. And I would recommend anybody in CPG to try to get an assignment like that because it'll just make you a sharper business leader. So this is great because we're getting so many of your successes. And obviously, you have a lot. You would not have the position at Young Brands if you do if you hadn't had a lot of successes. We all, of course, don't have successes and failures big and small. I mean, as best as you can tell, what marks the difference between when you fail and when you succeed? Huh, that's a good question. The first thing I'd say is, People that are afraid to fail, it will be very difficult to them to achieve their goals. Right. Whatever their career goals are. You always learn more with failure than you do with success. It's just the reality of it, right? And you have to allow yourself to be okay with failure so you can learn from it. Because if you can learn from it, you're going to grow and you're going to grow a lot faster, right? And one of the jokes I make with when I got asked to do this second assignment on Pizza Hut while I was still running KFC, and I brought over two guys. They're ex, both ex and g people to come help me turn Pizza Hut around that had worked with me like, turning around KSC. And we're two years into it, and the business has been, is an incredible place for Pizza Hut. It would be one of the great turnaround stories in fast food. And we were, like, we're having dinner the other night in Dallas, and I was talking to the guys. And I was like, guys, this is it's so funny. This just seems so much easier than it did 
when we were working on KSC and we were talking about why, and what we came, the conclusion was we didn't have to make all the same mistakes that we made on KSC to find the right solution. Like we already had learned from it, right? We could just focus on the things that we knew were going to work and make a meaningful impact on the business and forget about the other stuff that we tried that hadn't worked because we'd already done it once, right? And so the point is, is that failures are critically important in any career because as long as you learn from them, you're going to be a whole lot stronger, right? The people that refuse to learn from their failures because they're either, they're not vulnerable enough to admit them and so they don't want to learn from them or they're just really afraid of appearances for whatever reason, they have trouble growing. And you see them, they're the kind of people that they spin everything. Everything's positive and doesn't matter what the overall business trends are. Let me show you the underlying metrics and how good these KPIs are. And it's, they lose trust with their stakeholders. They don't actually learn and grow as individuals. And ultimately they will tap out sooner than their, their hope, right? And the reality is we're in a world today where being vulnerable is sexy. People like when I stand up and tell the system, the franchisees and say, look, that move that we made, that was a bonehead move and that was on me. And this is what I learned from it. And this is what we're going to do differently, right? And they know that because I feel I'm going to show accountability for how we go operate, they know that I trust them and they trust me. And whatever challenge we get, we're going to figure out together because they know I'm going to be okay with failing, right? And I'm going to own up to it. And it's it's such an important part, especially for young people. Can't tell you how many folks that I coach that I sit down and go, it's okay to be transparent on this. In fact, you need to be, right? Because if you can be that way and you can show people what you've learned, they're going to follow you in the battle every time. We're so lucky that that part of society certainly has evolved. You're right. The whole Brene Brown, let's be vulnerable, has really caught on in the last several years. And I think it has made things better, right? Personally and professionally for somebody to be able to say, hey, I failed. And the word failure, you know, at Procter & Gamble, you couldn't even use that word during my tenure. It was, well, it was a learning or it was a challenge or whatever it was. And and that's fine. It was those things and we we cleaned them up. But it's great to be able to just say, look, I mean, no one wants to fail. You don't set out to fail, of course. But, and if you learn something from it, it's not a failure, right? Like Thomas Edison said, you you just found what, what, he found what a thousand ways it didn't work or whatever it was when he was making the light bulb. So I think you're really honest something with the idea of owning it and people uh, respecting you for it. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing I would say too, that I've learned over the years is we see that a lot of young people, younger managers, they sometimes struggle with the corporate culture and the idea it's like a big business and why can't we move faster on things? And the counsel I always give them is our expectation is that you're going to blow stuff up, right? We don't want to hire people that are just going to run the playbook. We need people that are going to enact change and drive change. The challenge is, is, and what your ownership is, is not just to come up with the change ideas, but also share with us what's your plan if things don't go according to plan, right? I remember when we were going to bring back the kernel, which we hadn't talked about 20 years <laughs> on the brand, right? And I got a call from our CEO at Yum. And he's like, we tried that before. We brought back the kernel. It didn't work. He's like, why is this going to be different? I'm like, well, I don't know if it's going to be different, sir, but here's the plan. And here's how we're going to monitor whether customers are excited about it or not. And it was a very detailed plan and here's plan B if it doesn't work. And ultimately it is a big bet and you likely will need a new CMO of KFC in a year if it doesn't work, but here are the things I'm going to do to make sure it works. And if it doesn't, here's our plan B, right? So it's like, I had thought through all the things that could happen. And if customers really at, in mass really hated it, what we were going to do differently and what we were then going to pivot to. And so 
at the end of the day, he still had some doubts about whether it was going to work, but he saw that I had my ducks in order. In other words, I was prepared if it didn't work, what I was going to do. And it showed a level of accountability and responsibility that made him want to support me. Right. And then a couple of years later, he was like, man, you were right about that. And I really appreciate you pushing that. And the fact that you were so buttoned up on what could happen made me want to support you. And that's a big thing in change. You have a lot of young people that are like, I want to go fast. I want to change. And it's like, we want you to do that. But also have the ownership to think through what could happen that may not be according to plan and be prepared for it, right? So if like a bunch of customers said, we're going to boycott the brand because you brought back this person and that was disrespectful of this person, the colonel, what were we going to do with that? And how are we going to get things back on track if that happened and having a very finite plan and how we deal with it? Those types of contingency scenario planning that makes people want to go support you to do different things because they, sh- they see that you're going to own, even if it doesn't go well, what are you going to go do to get things back on track, right? And that's a really important part of change. It's not just what are you going to change, but how are we going to manage the risk in a way that makes everybody want to support you? We were talking about right before we hit record, we were talking about how so many people from P&G went into fast food. Why do you think that is? What determines whether you're successful? Could you you just talk to that a little bit? Because it's really interesting. It's unbelievable. And there's tons of people way more successful than me that came from P&G that are, you got the CEO of Chipotle, Brian Nickel. Rob Lynch is doing an amazing job at Papa John's as the CEO there. You got Jim Taylor, who's the president of Arby's. I interviewed him on this pod. Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, there's a huge list of, there's several more that are in big executive jobs that have the P&G pedigree. And it's interesting. My first interview when I interviewed with Yum was with a guy by the name of Greg Creed, who eventually became our CEO of Yum. At the time, he was the CEO of Taco Bell. And it was funny because we were reminiscing on when he was at Unilever, they had all these things that they did with deodorants and when I was on deodorants at P&G, Unilever is your arch enemy. You have all these famous stories of what Unilever would try to do to poke at us and that we would try to strike back. And anyway, we, so we spent like an hour talking about that. And he said, you know, Kevin, he's like the CPG people that we bring in the yum, they go one of two directions. Either they flame out in about a year or they just do incredibly well. Right. And he's like, you know, I'm an example of someone that came from CPG and has done well at yum and Brian Nickel had, was working for him at the time and said about that, about him. And he had a bunch of examples both ways, right? And he's totally right. Now that I've been in fast food for eight years, he's totally right about this observation. He's like, the ones that do well are better off, but they don't need all of the data. They can operate with part of the data. They trust their gut a little bit more. They're willing to move faster. They're very good at bringing multiple stakeholders along because we're a very matrix business, right? It's not like we're all one company. There's many franchisees, some of them are very complex, gigantic businesses themselves, right? And the guys that have trouble making the move from CPG, it's they're really smart and they're really, really thorough and they're really good at CPG, but they have trouble with fast food versus some of these other industries like retail where there are different players and and some are really good at X and some are really good at Y and there's different businesses that they're going to be, they're going to be able to excel at because of that, right? And I have trouble working in one category and going a mile deep and staying interested and motivated and excited, but that's needed for certain categories just because the investments are so big when you make decisions, right? We're not building a paper plant when we launch a new chicken sandwich, right? 
So the capital outlay is not as much and you don't have to quite do as much testing. You have to test and validate and there's big investments, but they're not the investments of a paper plan, right? So I think people are built differently and and it's really important on your careers to to go really get go deep on yourself and say, what motivates me? What gets me excited? Because you really want to structure your job and your industry in a place where you're going to be super happy, where it's taking advantage of your strengths more of the time because you'll do better. You'll enjoy it more and you'll probably progress faster because of that, because you're giving more contributions back to your company and your business. So, yeah, it is interesting. Like you said, there's sort of this dichotomy of people either flame out or they go to the top. It's interesting that you don't really see kind of that middle ground, but yeah, I could see it. Like you said, it's, it's a lot of it is just, can you make a decision with the information you have at the time? And that's something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. What do you do with that? And how do you take it from there? But it's interesting that you mentioned that because there's so many people who went into fast food and there's so many comedians that came out of PNG as well. It's, it's odd. People don't really think about that, but there are four of us who all left PNG and were doing stand-up comedy full-time and we're still doing it 15 years later. So I don't know what it is about fast food and comedy from PNG. It's not two things I would associate with Procter & Gamble, but I guess I learned a long time ago that PNG just hired talented people. They seem to be good at a number of things. They were just well-rounded folks in general. Yeah, I will tell you, humor is a really important place in our organization because yeah. if coming to work's not fun, why bother coming, right? And I do appreciate people that bring fun and humor to our business. And now a word from our sponsor. Me, Roman Segel, one of your favorite Learnings from Leaders co-hosts. As you may already know, I actually host another podcast on race and gender called Modern Minorities with my co-hostess with the mostest, Sharon Lee Tony, where we're out to create greater empathy and understanding in the world alongside folks who look and live differently from us. Modern Minorities is a show where each week my longtime pal Raman and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah, Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, comic creators, VCs, startup hustlers, climate activists, angry Asians, getaway car drivers, politicians, athletes, chefs, writers, and even more than a few PNG alumni. Folks who are black, brown, white, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, community policing mayor Svante Myrick, representative Jennifer Gong Gershowitz, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, Good Talk author Mira Jacob, Peloton instructor Sam Yeo, comics creator Jean Lun Yang, PNG alumni voices like Kenyatta Nelson, Stefan K. James, Ida Abdelkani, Rajiv Satyal, Andrew Tarvin, Matt Story, Naveen Gupta, and many, many more from the PNG family and beyond. We've even talked about Ramadan, Diwali, Lunar New Year's, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. And now, back to our show. Diversity, equity, and inclusion have, have become such a major part of corporate America and multinationals in general. How have you managed to help others through professional adversity because of race, gender, sexuality, especially if you know that they've faced those challenges? Yeah, I've always been a supporter of that, but I will be you know, very candid here. And based on the social unrest that happened last summer, it made me really be much more introspective about what I know about equity, inclusion, and belonging and become a much deeper student about it. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you the story was, this was probably late summer of last year. And one of the guys in our Pizza Hut business came up with this amazing idea. We were going to sponsor a, we've always had a relationship with children reading. We had this program called Book It. 
and many of your audience probably had, had used Book It when they were kids. I still have the button. Right. But you, you, you'd read a book and you get a, a free pan pizza. We still have that relationship decades later. And so someone came up with the idea of, well, why don't we sponsor a children's author who writes books with main characters that are underrepresented people of color, right? Because we buy a lot of books as a part of that program, but we've never used that power and that money for having more diverse authors and more diverse characters in the books that we buy, right? It's a really smart idea. And as a part of that program, we were going to sponsor a Black author of children's books. His name is Jason Reynolds. And I got a call from somewhere in the central of the country. And he said, hey, do you know who this author is? And he promotes a socialist agenda in his book and told me all these things. And I just kind of listened. And I said, well, I'll look into it. I got the phone with him. I was like, boy, I better read this book, right? The one, I guess, most recent book he wrote. And it's interesting. So the book that Jason Reynolds wrote was, he actually didn't write the book. He remixed the book. So the book is called uh, Stamp from the Beginning. It's by an author by the name of Kendi, Ibram Kendi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his first name right, so I apologize. I think that's right. It's an amazing book, and it's about the history of racism in America and how it got here and how it evolved over the years and the need to be more than just against this, but actually be anti-racist, right? Right. And this Jason Reynolds, who's a children's author, decided to basically remaster this book for children. So instead of this much longer book, it was a book that was condensed and written so that teenagers could read it and enjoy it. And I was like, that sounds like my kind of book. I like books that are condensed and it gets to the point. And so I went and read it. It was a very easy read. Incredible book. In fact, I immediately bought one for my mom to read oh, wow. to people in our organization. And after you read that book, you realize none of what this guy said was true. He was clearly getting this from some social media thing in his feed. And I called him back and I explained, look, I read the book. This is what I learned in the book. I would encourage you to read the book. It's absolutely fine. It's a great book. In fact, I think a lot of people should read this book. And from just that one instance, I realized, boy, if I'm going to be not just someone that supports this, because if you don't actually actively do something in this, in this area, then you're actually supporting the other side, right? And that's the thing that you learn as you- About being anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Right. As you go into equity, inclusion, and belonging, and you start learning about it as if it's a discipline like marketing or finance or accounting or whatever, Right. You start learning that if you're not actively trying to break down some of these systemic biases, then you're a part of the problem. Even if your heart's not a part of the problem, you're a part of the problem, right? That's a very sobering thing to hear, right? And so what it made me think is, boy, I better learn a whole lot more about this so I can speak to it. And because that guy's not going to be the first person that challenges me on things, right? And so I became a student of both with books and, and surrounding myself with people that I know were very forward in this area, that they had actually done work in it. It was a personal passion for them well before what the events have happened last summer, right? And then immediately I started what we call a president's council that lives today on both businesses, so on KFC and Pizza Hut, where it's representative of the entire organization, but overrepresented certainly with our black employees at all levels. And they had two roles for us. One was, and so it's me, and so I lead it with our head of HR, and then we have a representative for EIB on both businesses. And then we have this, this volunteer group that we nominate and they agree to do it. And they, they have two jobs. One job is to give me feedback on the programs that we're rolling out to try to improve in this area. And the second is to be a truth teller about what they're seeing in the organization and things that I need to know as the leader of two big organizations, right? On how we need to start making better progress. 
And I got to tell you, I'll give you a simple example of why this has been so impactful. So I think we all know the importance of having diversity in our leadership teams or our different teams. And we need to have diverse points of view because that's going to drive the business better. But to hear a black employee say, Kevin, I don't see me represented in these functions or at these levels. And when you hire someone that looks like me, it tells me I belong here. It's a very powerful statement than hearing the theory about why it's important to have diverse teams, right? And then you start understanding if this person doesn't feel like they belong here, we're going to lose talent. And that's exactly what's happened over the years, right? Those types of things are so eye-opening. And it's like probably there's some people are rolling their eyes and going, I'm, I'm glad Kevin has finally spent some time on this and learned about this. But it's incredibly important to be a student on this if you want to be a part of the solution versus just saying I'm supportive of it. And it's been a huge journey for me. It'll continue to be a journey. The more I learn, the more I realize I have to learn more. But at the end of the day, especially senior leaders in, in organizations, if we don't act anti-racist and try to affect change, then we ourselves are part of the problem, unfortunately. Yeah, you're right. Because, I mean, corporations just have so much power, right? And so much influence, but also just raw power. I mean, influence is a nice way of saying it sometimes, just like cleaning up failure to challenge. I mean, there's a lot of power in corporate America and multinationals in general. And I think that is the way to effect change a lot of the time is people like yourself, people who are at the top in, in leadership roles, really living that. It does say a lot to people of color. I think it does say a lot to different communities out there because it's certainly a lever we can pull in society when we grant brands so much influence and power over us. And a lot of it's fun. A lot of it is, is good natured and Yum Brands is a fun place. And I mean, I, I eat at those, at those places quite often, but it's good to see that being integrated, that it can be a both hand sort of situation. Yeah. And obviously it's a huge business lever. 70% of our employees at the store level are people of color. The younger you are, the more quick service restaurants you eat at, right? And if you want to get that next generation of customer and keep your business healthy and growing, you're going to have to cater to all people, right? And make sure that they feel like they belong and are included in our restaurants. So it's critically important from a business standpoint. It's critically important from the right thing to do. It's something I really have always admired with Proctor. They've always been on the lead on these things, even when they're not in vogue yet, right? To be someone out in front, even when they take some arrows for it. And it's very impressive to see a big company do that. Pivoting a little bit here to the personal, I mean, look, you have a family, I have a family. It's hard sometimes, right? As they call it work-life balance. And as a friend of mine once said, when you call it work-life balance, you almost set up a conflict because work is part of your life, right? I mean, life is the overall circle and work is a part of that, albeit a big part of that. That said, I mean, was there a moment when you took your foot off the gas pedal or felt like you needed to, to do that? Maybe when your kids are born or at another time? Well, there was a guy at Proctor who... I mean, I think he had like a regular job. He was like the president of a big business unit, right? But he did all these speeches. His name was Jim Lafferty. I know him well. Okay, you know him well. So about work-life effectiveness. And I remember I saw him at an MDO. He came to speak at an MDO meeting. He flew. He was definitely not from the US or the North American business, but he flew in to just do this for us. And it was just, I mean, there were some people crying in the audience. They're like, boy, this guy is going to enable people to have to figure out how to be more balanced. It. He never called it balance. He called it work-life effectiveness. And we ended up getting a video that we could show our organizations. I have it for my organization here at KFC and 
didn't have a dry eye in the room when I showed it, even though they didn't understand half the proctorisms that got the point of it, right? <laughs> and there's so many good lessons. And then whenever I share his lessons with people, I'll be like, I do like a training on it. And I give him credit for most of this stuff is coming from this fellow, Jim Lafferty. I tell his story. And I'm like, even if you just take one or two things from what I'm going to share with you in the next hour and you enact them on Monday, you will see a remarkable difference in your work-life effectiveness. I promise you, right? You're not going to agree with everything that we say, but if you take one or two of these things and you put them in place, you will see a difference in your work-life effectiveness. And every time it works and everybody's like, oh, can I have that DVD? Cause you didn't show it this time. And like, great. Right. And one of the things I thought was really powerful in it was Jim's point about five roles. You can have any given time, yep. you can have five roles and you can't really do more than five. So if somebody asks you to do a sixth role, you've got to take stock of, am I willing to get rid of one of the other five or am I just going to say no? And the point is, is if you spread yourself too thin, then you're going to, you're essentially going to disappoint everybody. Right. And every once in a while, there'll be some kind of life event. Becoming a father, for me, was a life event where I had to give up being a golfer. And I just stopped playing golf for 15 years. And then I've just started up because my son is old enough where he wants to play with me again. And so now it's starting to become a part of my life again because it's something we can do together, right? But I remember when the CEO of Yum asked me to do the second job on Pizza Hut. And I'm like, I got to think about it. I spent the weekend laying out, how would this all work? This is before COVID. So I'm going to spend a week in Dallas where the pizza team is. I'm going to spend a week with my family in Louisville and how would the leadership teams work and how would I spend my time? And I came to the conclusion that I couldn't be like a mentor anymore. I'd have to drop that as one of my five things. And when I say mentor, it would be, it'd be like, I was telling you earlier that with everybody, every high potential in my KFC organization, probably like 35 people I will have a one-on-one with them. And every one of my directors, which is another 30 people, I have a one-on-one with them once every six months just to stay in touch with what's going on. How can I help them, right? I'd have to get rid of all of that. And then all of the mentees that I have outside of KSC, I just would have to pause, right? And it was a tough decision, but I'm like, I don't know how to do this other thing if I don't pause being, because I wasn't going to stop being a son right. or a dad right. or a husband, Right or a leader of KSC, right? So like I ran out of things to drop and I had to drop this thing that was really important to me. But honestly, it made me much more successful, right? And, it, and people, it's so funny because people always say, man, we've had really good results on both businesses over the last couple of years. And people are like, oh, how did you do this? And it's another Jim Lafferty-ism. It's like people will, they'll rise to their, they'll rise and when you give them the chance or they'll sink and you'll find out pretty quickly. But if they're trained, and they're really skilled, they're going to be fine, right? And when, so when people are like, how do you do it? It's, it's not really about me. I'm spending half of the time with each of those leadership teams, right? I'm spending half of the time with each of those organizations. I can't double my time, right? It's the leaders that run those businesses underneath me. They're the ones that have taken the brunt of this, right? And because they're so exceptional, they've been able to win, right? And the point is, is if you just spend an hour with a Jim Lafferty video, or it's like, it's like an hour and a half, and you just get a little bit from it, it's going to be life-changing in terms of your work-life effectiveness. Because if I hadn't had exposure to Jim teaching me those things, I don't, by the way, I've never actually met Jim personally. So, <laughs> Oh, wow. So, yeah. Just say, hey, you know, Kevin, like, I have no idea who that is, right? But so many of his lessons I have applied to my work-life career, and it's made me so much more efficient and effective and more fulfilled, right? Like, you know, another stupid one is, just have one calendar, right? Because I used to have like a personal calendar. And I used to have a work calendar. And then 
my wife would be like, oh, can you make Jane's graduation? Eighth grade graduation? I'm like, well, eighth grade graduation I made, but it was like kindergarten graduation. It's like, well, you told me three days before what happened. Well, in Jim's world, it's, well, if you have one calendar and you get ahead of like at the beginning of the school year, what's all the big events, put them in. And guess what? People will just work around you and you'll be able to go to all these really important things and not have to have these terrible decisions that either you disappoint a group of 30 people or your daughter, right? And they're not that hard, right? You literally can, day after watching that video, enact these things and they will have a market impact on your work-life effectiveness. And I can't thank Jim enough for giving me that gift. I'm sure many others will say the exact same thing I'm saying, but it is a life changer. I agree. He and I both spoke at a GE event. I was doing stand-up comedy and he was doing his keynote speech. And it really it really resonated with me. And I think we were on a couple of programs together. And I just quoted him last week. I mean, I, I talked about one of his strategies for work-life effectiveness, as you were talking about. One of them was to vacation in a different spot every year. And he really came down on people who went to the same location every year. And I know so many people like that from Cincinnati who always went to Hilton Head, always went to Gatlinburg. And he just, he really took them to task. And he said, you have the hardest time marking time because you're like, was that in 93 or 94? It's like, well, you can't tell because you went to Hilton Head for the last 20 years. He goes, go to Peru, go to India, go to Ireland. There's, It's a big world out there. And it's the idea of just not falling into a habit and also just exploring the earth and, and being able to live a more fulfilled life. And it was just funny to watch him go off on it, but he's got such an effective style. Not everybody can pull that off because it, it's assertive, aggressive, but he makes it in such a way that it's so it's so effective and so impactful to watch him speak. So we've had him on the pod and he's is really someone who has inspired a lot of people. Yeah, pretty special person. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, this past year, and we've touched on a little bit of this, Kevin, already in, in this chat, but this past year, past year and a half, really, has been particularly crazy and challenging. And you sound like a purpose-driven leader. A lot of people come out of P&G are. You've led large organizations. You still do, of course, at Young Brands. I mean, what advice would you give to this new crop of leaders? Or even if they're not new, just maybe leaders in general right now? Well, at the end of the day, you got to do things that you care about because if you care about it, you can't fake caring, right? And if you care about people and businesses and efforts, you're going to have much better success. You're going to be more fulfilled. The people around you are going to appreciate you more, right? It's critically important to, you got to care about what you do, right? And one of the things that the franchisees appreciate about me is they know I care about them and I care about their business and I care about their team members. And that's how I lead my organization, right? The first question I'll ask folks is like, well, how's that going to impact the 80,000 KFC team members? And are they going to be able to execute that? Mm -hmm. And don't they have a lot on their plate right now in the middle of a pandemic? And what are we going to take off their plate so they can do these things? And just having empathy for others, because at the end of the day, I care about them. Like when I go into a restaurant, one of the first things I ask a restaurant general manager, so this is the person that runs you know, that individual store, is... You know when you're in the cooler and you're complaining, you're cursing out the company because they make you do X and there's this way smarter way to do it. And they're like, they had not. Yeah. I'm like, this is your chance to tell me. I run the business. My leadership team is here with us. Tell me what's on your mind, right? And they usually just open up and they're like, well, I don't know why we do this. And we got to think about that. And, and you meet a couple more RGMs, the restaurant general managers, and they tell you the same thing. You got a problem in those areas, right? So you can't fake caring. Caring solves a lot of challenges. And so it's really important to choose something that you care about, that is important to you, that you want to see successful, whether it's a particular industry or a type of business. This hospitality business for me is really important to me because I started off with, hey, I'm a servant leader, or at least I want to be. 
And hospitality allows you to be a servant leader a whole lot more often, right? Because that's just a part of what that business is. But that'd be my biggest piece of counsel, especially for younger managers where the younger you are and the more junior you are, the more flexibility you have to try new things before you kind of, you go up a line, right? And there's just less jobs available the higher you go and the harder it is to do any kind of meaningful shifts in your career and what industry or what you do within that industry. And so the time to explore is when you're younger and have more flexibility to do those things. But if you find something that you care about and you're really passionate about, everything else gets a whole lot easier. I could not agree more. And on that note, I want to ask you our final question. Is there a piece of advice or challenge or question that you would give to this next generation? That's a good question. I would probably take it to a more personal level. I think the challenge I give people, and I do this all the time, and it's something I learned at Yum, which I think is really important, is what are you working on to really realize your potential? Where are you today? Where do you want to be? And what are the things that you're deliberately doing that are going to help you get to what you want? And how often do you refresh that? Our founder, David Novak, he calls it a two by four, which is where am I today? Where do I want to go? And across, call it four vectors, right? And I think any leader should have that because you always, you always need to be working on something, right? There's always something that you can improve. And Jim Lafferty talks about this, right? We just talked about him. He always picks a couple things every year that he wants to accomplish because it's something that he is striving to go learn to do or to accomplish, right? And it keeps him sharp and keeps him looking forward looking about it's a growth mindset, right? It's how people need to live if they want to grow and, and realize their potential. And it's so important to take time. Everybody's super busy, all these pressures coming at us, right? But you've got to take time for yourself and say, where am I today? Where do I want to be in the future? And what are the things I'm doing that are going to help me get there, right? And being really honest about whether you make progress or not. And if you do that, I think the sky's the limit to realize your potential. And at the end of the day, that's all we can do. We've all been given a certain amount of potential to do whatever we're going to do, right? And it's really our challenge to maximize that, right? And if you are deliberate about it and committed to it and take the time to do it, you can do that, right? You can do anything that you want. But you have to be deliberate about those types of exercises and be really honest with yourself and just constantly be in that mode of like, how am I going to grow myself? Kevin, that was amazing. We really, really appreciate your joining us. No, thanks for having me on. It was really nice to be able to reflect on kind of my 26 years in corporate America. And and I just couldn't be more grateful for the leaders that have taught me so much at P&G and now at Yum and a very blessed individual to be a part of both great companies. So I appreciate you having me on the podcast. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Rajiv Sathyal. And I'm still Raman Segal. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.